0: Hello and welcome to our podcast series on The Evidence Base. My name is Ilana Landau and I'm the editor of The Evidence Base. Today I am very excited to be joined by Alan Lopez from the University of Melbourne, Australia, as we let the evidence speak for itself and peek behind the study paper of one of Alan's most recently published works. Alan is the Laureate Professor of Global Health and Burden of Disease Measurement at the University of Melbourne. Prior to joining the University of Melbourne, Alan spent over 20 years working in various senior roles at the World Health Organization in Geneva, including his acting as Director of the Epidemiology and Burden of Disease Unit and Senior Science Advisor to the Director General. Alan currently leads the Data for Health initiative, aiming to improve health data in developing countries by employing novel research and communication technologies. Alan thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Excellent. Well, Alan, for our audience, could you please kick off by elaborating a little more on your current position, affiliate institution, and research interests?
1: So, I'm a a laureate professor of global health and burden of disease measurement at the University of Melbourne in Australia. Uh, And I'm part of the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health within the University of Melbourne. My research interests have largely been uh, consistent over my entire 40 years of academic life, and that is trying to measure who dies of what, to try to understand reliably the leading causes of death in populations and how they are changing. So that's the the primary uh, uh, research interest I have. That has led to a number of related interests and related um, research collaborations. Probably the largest of those and well-known is the Global Burden of Disease Study with uh, Professor Christopher Murray, now at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation in Washington. Uh, Chris and I started the Global Burden of Disease Study over three decades ago, so it's now well and truly matured, but still ongoing.
0: And then a related
1: interest is trying to help countries to better improve their uh, cause of death data system so that they can measure more reliably who's dying of what and and adapt policy accordingly.
0: Brilliant, thank you. So Alan, you recently published some research concerning global changes in cardiovascular disease-related mortality rates. Could you tell us a little bit about what prompted you to conduct this research?
1: So for the last four decades since the early 1970s most uh, countries including all the anglo-saxon countries the US the UK Australia Canada New Zealand uh, have had tremendous declines in cardiovascular disease mortality so death rates from things like heart attacks and strokes have fallen in these countries by 70 or 80% that's 70 or 80% it's a massive decline in the risk of death from these uh, very important uh, causes of death, the leading killers in most most of these populations. Now, we've been watching this for many decades, and, of course, we're trying to attribute this to various things, and um, various studies, including several I've been involved in, have, have attributed this to things like uh, reductions in smoking, huge reductions in smoking, because smoking is one of the leading risk factors for major vascular disease, but also better diet, more exercise, better cardiac care, uh, lower blood pressures, better medication, a number of uh, elements of a cocktail that have addressed this massive mortality from cardiovascular disease that we saw in the 1960s uh, and early 1970s, and which in cases like Australia led to an actual decline in life expectancy for males. So we have seen this, um, this epidemic of cardiovascular disease evolve, we've been monitoring it, and it's been progressively declining. Uh, but beginning about seven or eight years ago, around 2010, that decline started to attenuate. And indeed, over the last uh, four or five years, the rate of decline of cardiovascular disease, the long-term rate of decline has slowed considerably And in countries like Australia and Canada, it is now no longer declining, that death rate. And in countries like the United States, death rates from major vascular disease are, in fact, increasing. This is a huge change in the long-term epidemiology of vascular disease in these countries that requires immediate policy response. The purpose of our paper was to reliably document that in as much detail as we thought would be useful for policy.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. So in terms of reliably documenting those changes in uh, disease-associated mortality rates, could you briefly discuss some of the challenges and limitations associated with with methods for estimating disease-associated mortality rates? And could you also briefly discuss the PETO or PETO-LOPED method, for estimating, in that instance, tobacco-related mortality rates from vital statistics?
1: Okay, so there's two components to this that I want to uh, distinguish. One is causes of death, and the other is causes of the causes of death. The, The first part of your question, Ilana, relates to how do you measure the causes of death that we're all familiar with in what's called the international classification of diseases. This includes things like stroke. Or ischemic heart disease which we know as heart attacks or chronic obstructive lung disease which we know uh, widely as chronic bronchitis and emphysema or suicide or homicide or various known diseases and injuries that um, are commonplace in life and that have lung cancers among them cervical cancer uh, stomach cancer and so on so all of these are listed among the three thousand or more causes of death in the international classification of diseases. The problem is that for any country, the United Kingdom, Australia or elsewhere, the statistics on these causes are compiled from the death certificates that doctors in hospitals or GPs sign when one of their patients dies. And doctors in in hospitals and GPs have not been uh, fully aware or indeed well-taught in how to certify correctly the cause of death. So for example, if someone has a stroke and they go into hospital, they may have certain complications of that stroke and they may eventually develop septicemia and septicemia. We are in public health largely uninterested, largely uninterested in septicemia and knowing about it. That's a hospital management issue. What we want to know is what fraction of the population are dying from stroke that caused the fatal sequence in the first place? And what can we do about it? So the problem we've had in in doing the global burden of disease study and doing the kinds of studies uh, that are monitoring uh, trends in death rates from vascular disease and similar studies, say in cancer or other causes, is that doctors in countries generally don't understand their public health responsibility in correctly certifying that sequence of events that leads to death death, so that trained coders in these countries can then correctly code those causes of death so that they are of public health value when policymakers and countries want to consult them. And we have come up with various methods for correcting what we call our garbage codes. And these are causes of death that doctors use that cannot or should not be used to describe the underlying cause of death that led to, to, to the death and which prevention policy needs to address. So we've, we've developed a series of methods that we can use to uh, fix these causes of death, but it's a secondary fix. It's an unsatisfactory fix. It's much better if doctors in various countries can be taught why it matters to correctly certify causes of death and how to correctly certify causes of death. It's very simple, doctors are smart, they can learn it quickly, and we at the University of Melbourne have developed a series of guidelines and apps that doctors can consult to uh, to correctly uh, understand how to certify causes of death and hence improve policy utility of the cause of death data in countries. So that's the, the, the cause of death. Now, the second part of your question, Ilana, refers to the causes of the cause of death. And one of the main causes or risk factors that underlie mortality in countries like the UK and Australia is smoking, cigarette smoking. And it's been that way for four or five decades. Now, the peak of smoking uh, in the United Kingdom, for example, uh, was in the early 1960s. And since then, we've seen dramatic declines in uh, the prevalence of smoking, driven by knowledge by the population of the extreme hazards of smoking. A smoker has a threefold chance of dying at any age compared to a, a lifelong non-smoker. That is just an absurd risk for anyone to, um, to, to, to even contemplate. And what uh, we've been trying to do over the years is try to bring to policymakers in countries the size of the amount of mortality or the amount of mortality that's due to smoking, both males and females separately. Remember, women in countries like the UK and Australia began to smoke in large numbers two to three decades after men, and they began to die in large numbers from smoking two to three decades after men. So we we do need to make these estimates of smoking attributable mortality separately for males and females. And the the classical epidemiological methods for doing that are fundamentally flawed because they say we need the prevalence of smoking in a population and we need the hazards associated but the hazards associated with smoking are developed from previous studies where there was previous levels of prevalence so you cannot use current prevalence with relative risks estimated from epidemiological studies professor richard peto and i in the early 1990s recognized this and said is there some way that we can develop a simple method that respects the epidemiology of tobacco namely the long lag time between when people start to smoke in large numbers and when they begin to die in large numbers and so we needed to develop a method that corrected current cause of death statistics say from lung cancer and heart attacks and stroke that corrected those statistics on the basis of how long people had been smoking in those populations. And the key to that, the key to unlocking that method, was to use lung cancer as a measure of how long people had been smoking and how much.
0: That's really interesting. Thank you very much. So what are some of the benefits of employing national vital statistics to determine in one instance, cardiovascular disease-related mortality rates, but more generally, any disease-associated mortality rate?
1: Well, I think policy to keep a population healthy really ought to be based on evidence. There's no point waving your hands and saying, well, we should take the budget from last year and increase it by 2%. That's ideology, and that's uninformed planning. Rather, what you should be doing is going back and looking at fundamentally important evidence about trends in in the leading causes of disease and injury and the best source of that the historically um, established long-term trends in that evidence are causes of death ie the vital statistics that are compiled each year by statistics offices in London or Melbourne or elsewhere and these data are then made available to governments to use for determining Um, the the priority policies these were the data in the 1960s that people like sir Richard Dole and Austin Bradford Hill in the United Kingdom had available to them and they said look at this absurd trend in lung cancer what is driving this rapid rise in male lung cancer mortality in the United Kingdom they were able to um, to see that from the vital statistics and that of course led to the very important studies in the United Kingdom led by Dole and Hill on the importance of cigarette smoking, firstly for lung cancer, but then subsequently to many other diseases as well. All of that public health evidence was driven by the compilation of vital statistics that in the United Kingdom, had been available for 150 years, starting uh, in the 1840s with William Farr, one of the uh, very enlightened medical statisticians in the United Kingdom. Other countries like Australia started later, but nonetheless still have long time series of how mortality from disease has changed. That information is absolutely fundamental for planning interventions. So, for example, in the early 1970s, in countries, again, like Australia and the United Kingdom and the U.S., we saw rapid increases in uh, mortality from road traffic accidents, particularly among young men. And so this was evident from the vital statistics. It soon became clear that an awful lot of this was due to drink driving, particularly among young men, to not wearing seat belts, to not wearing helmets when they were riding motorcycles. So governments took uh, measures. They enacted bold public policy. In order to control these risk factors um, for road traffic accidents, uh, and particularly related to alcohol and, and um, seat belt wearing and helmets. So this all became evident because governments had available to them long term trends in causes of death in their population, and that's what we've been trying to do to help developing countries who don't have that long term uh, history of data, who don't have the resources that are available in the UK or Australia or elsewhere, in the developed world, but still can can generate those data in a cost-effective way by using novel methodologies.
0: Absolutely. So following on from that, what do you hope some of the practical implications of your research may be? How do you hope healthcare decision makers and investors will respond?
1: I think the primary thing that we try to focus on are the big causes of causes of death. So what, you, what one needs to really get across to governments is there's no point in spending a lot of effort on something very small, even though there may be a lot of political pressure to do something about drowning or do something about um, dengue. Uh, these are, of course, these are important for people who suffer them but it's a relatively small fraction of the population who die from these these sorts of conditions. Rather, there's a large fraction of the population that die from ischemic heart disease or stroke or lung cancer or chronic bronchitis or road traffic accidents or suicide, etc. And so what I'm hoping by the studies that we do in the global burden of disease, but also uh, the kinds of mortality analyses that we've been publishing recently, is to to draw attention of governments to the fact that there are large causes of death, many of which are largely preventable. And even small changes in large causes of preventable death will result in massive gains in public health in their populations. And that's the message that I'm trying to get across to governments.
0: Sure, thank you. So in your opinion, having had so much experience with the global burden of disease and studies measuring uh, mortality rates, how may we work towards ensuring cardiovascular disease-associated mortality rates continue to decline, especially, as you mentioned earlier, given the already low uh, smoking rates in English-speaking countries? Is vaping a concern to this as well?
1: Well, I think, firstly, uh, we need to recognize that this um, uh, attenuation of the long-term decline is happening at levels that are not as low as we can go it's happening at death rates that are still twice as high as japan for example so if the japanese population uh, have achieved death rates uh, that are half as large as the united kingdom or australia Australian and the United Kingdom populations ought to be able to achieve further declines. We have not reached the hard rock, as it were, and yet we've seen death rates now trending back upwards. Um, and so we have a challenge. There is still scope for improvement. And what we need to do is revert back to the kinds of, of um, public policy that epidemiology tells us will work. We know we can reduce um, smoking further. It's hard because we've, we've made huge gains from 60 or 70% of UK men smoking immediately after World War II. It's now down to about 14 or 15%. But it can go lower. And so what we need to do is ensure that we do not give up on the, um, the efforts to reduce smoking further. But we also need to address other risk factors in the population. Uh, things like obesity. Uh, we saw in the 1980s and 1990s populations like Australia, United Kingdom, United States become much fatter. People became overweight and then frankly obese to the point now where one in three adults in the United Kingdom or Australia or the US are frankly obese, that is, having a body mass index. Um, that is greater than thirty that incurs significant health risks, particularly for cardiovascular disease, but also for diabetes and some cancers. We need to reverse that. We have no tools as far as I can see at the moment, that have proven to be effective in reducing obesity levels in population. whereas we've managed to do that for smoking, we have not done that for um, for obesity so i think it's addressing some of these new epidemics that have um, descended on us in the last uh, two or three decades we have not been successful in addressing them we need to apply the same public health paradigm and principles that we use to successfully control or bring down tobacco to relatively low levels so i think that's what we're seeing out of our studies that there are new challenges that public policy and governments need to address pretty urgently. And we think that these new challenges like obesity have had a lot to do with the um, slowdown in the rate of decline of cardiovascular disease. Now in terms of vaping, as I think I mentioned earlier, two thirds of smokers who begin smoking at a relatively young age in the young um, 20s or late teens and continue smoking will eventually kill themselves. From tobacco two two in three and that is a huge amount of excess mortality now you can reduce those risks by uh, adopting uh, nicotine substitution practices and vaping is one of them but vaping is not without risks and it has not been around long enough for us to understand what those risks are and the potential impact at the population level certainly it's going to be uh, lower risk than, than smoking just because it doesn't have the four or 5,000 uh, constituent um, parts, that uh, carcinogenic parts that a cigarette has. But it still has some, and it still ha- uh, can cause um, increased heart rate and some other heart health effects that might well lead to vascular disease complications. So while I can see vaping as a legitimate strategy, in some cases, for um, for for cutting down smoking and and reducing smoking, uh, and and that will bring public health benefits. It is very important to understand it is not without risk.
0: Well, thank you very much. I'll just uh, end off by asking you a sort of future-looking question. Do you have uh, further studies planned, for example, to continue to monitor? Uh, cardiovascular disease specifically or other disease associated mortality rates
1: well I think the cardiovascular disease one is a uh, uh, story is far from clear we know now that cardiovascular disease when we correct for all this garbage coding that doctors do we, we've got the story pretty clear we think about where it's changing where it's beginning to go up how fast it's going up in which age groups for both males and females, etc. The descriptive epidemiology, as it were, of cardiovascular disease in high-income countries, at least, is pretty clear. What is not clear is why. Why are we beginning to see uh, death rates from cardiovascular disease rising in some populations after decades of decline? And I think that's where uh, the future research agenda uh, lies, and uh, I am not a clinician, so I'm not able to conduct the clinical research that would underlie that, uh, some, however that important that is. But what we will be doing now is moving into what's called multiple cause of death data, where we take those death certificates, de-identified of course, and look at the other conditions that the doctor wrote down for people who died from heart attacks or stroke, what else was on that death certificate? Uh, for example, was there hypertension? Was there hypercholesterolemia? Was there um, frank obesity mentioned? What what else was mentioned? And can we relate those mentions to this um, obesity uh, risk factor e- epidemic? In other words, our null hypothesis here is that obesity uh, is the primary driving factor for the increase in cardiovascular disease or the slowdown and the long-term decline. But we need to be able to demonstrate that rigorously, statistically, uh, and that's what we are now beginning to do by looking at data from several countries, including the United States and Australia, to see whether we can piece that picture together so that we'll be able to present to policymakers not just a description of the trends, but some understanding of the, um, of, the, of the reasons why those trends are occurring.
0: Great. Thank you very much. Well, unfortunately, that is all we have time to discuss today. Once again, Alan, thank you very much for participating in this podcast episode.
1: It was a pleasure, Alana. Thank you.
0: And to all our audience, if you, if you join me in having enjoyed this episode and learning something new, I would love to hear about it in the comments below or at the Evidence-Based Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. And remember, you can discover more on real-world evidence, epidemiology and other topics at www.evidencebasedonline.com.